I love the words from today's gospel passage. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus starts by telling his friends. Usually I like to have a bit more of a longer introduction but I, I just find to my sermons, but I just find that these words are so invitational. They just draw us in. Uh, and so I just, I just want to dive into this message. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why do you think Jesus tells his disciples that? Surely they are troubled. <laughs> you can probably glean that, right? Jesus has just shared a lot of bad news with his disciples. First, he told them that he's going to be leaving them soon. And this rattles them, this jars them. Then he says that one of them, alluding to Judas, is about to betray him and, and hand him over into the hands of angry men. And then Peter is like, hey, I'm not going to let any of this happen. And Jesus says, actually, you are about to deny that you ever even knew me. So Peter especially is troubled in this moment. So as you can imagine, this all kind of lands on the disciples like a, like a punch to the gut. You see, for the past several years, they've been walking with Jesus, and they've seen him heal people. They've even seen him bring someone back from the dead. They've seen people's lives completely transformed. And they've placed this, not just their own personal hope in Jesus, but the hope of their nation for freedom from oppressive governments. They, they're also placing all of the promises of, of God's new kingdom, his new order, to be satisfied and answered through Jesus Christ. They have a lot of hope in Jesus. And so when he says, I'm departing from you, it's like all the air is being sucked out of the room. It's all just falling apart, they feel. So I wonder what sort of troubles do you bring with you today? What sort of fear do you bring with yourself today? I don't think I'm overstating things when I say that these days, it seems as if fear is the dominant reality of our world. It's the commerce of our world. It's, it's what fuels our industries. We're all afraid of something. Maybe we just even look at the global scene and we see leaders who are tyrannical and lunatics who are leading their nations at war for who knows what reason. We look in our own society and we see the decadence of it all and we see these warning lights of cultural collapse. <laughs> we also read the headlines of uh, just what's going on here in the church and we hear of moral failings. It seems like there's a new one every single week. Or we could even just look at ourselves and uh, see our own bodies kind of slowing down, and we see the trajectory uh, of that. And maybe I'll just speak for myself as someone who turned 40 and was like, oh, that's new. <laughs> but we're slowing down, <laughs> right? My point is that there's much fear that we all carry. Let not your hearts be troubled, says the Good Shepherd. This isn't just some kind of hokey mantra. It's not like if you repeat this over and over, those fears just kind of go away. Jesus isn't charging you to just stuff them down. This isn't some cold-hearted command that he gives us. No, this is an invitation to hope. Jesus-shaped hope. It's hope that's anchored in historical events. It's hope that's anchored in his spiritual authority, his powerful authority. This is real hope that we can hold on to and cling to, that can transform our hearts and our imaginations. 
This is real, authentic hope. So I'm going to move us through this in kind of three different movements uh, through this passage. And I want us to, to glean just a, uh, or I want us to, if, if today, if by the end of this service, if you can just have a, a small um, increase in desire for hope, um, then that, I'll, I'll see that as a, a huge win. So may you be stirred up into greater hope today. Jesus says in verse three, in my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. So if you're like me and uh, you grew up in youth group in the 90s, that reminds you of an audio adrenaline song. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, How, what's the, and I'm, am I right with audio adrenaline? I said newsboys at the first service and several people came up and corrected me afterwards. <laughs> I was like, I Googled this. I thought it was Newsboys, but it was audio adrenaline. Uh, In my father's house, there are many, many rooms. Uh, A big, big yard where we can play football. Okay, great. (laughs) Everyone who's like older than 43 is like, that generation is weird, (laughs) which is valid. Um, Anyway, even if you haven't heard that song, our American Christianity has when it comes to envisioning heaven, we, we have a very sort of literal and materialistic view of heaven, don't we? Like we think of actual mansions and, and actual yards with football posts and stuff. If I had it my way, there would not be football in heaven. So there, there, you, there you have it. But I think what, what Jesus is describing here is an entirely different mode of reality and I think maybe if, if we were to, to use some modern language, the, what Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about, about new creation. He's talking about his second coming. It, and when you, when you take a serious look at what the scriptures have to say about this, it's, it, we, you find yourselves at the limits of language. It's as if they're trying to describe this, this other dimension, this, this alt, just this new reality entirely. Jesus is preparing a place for those who love him. It's beyond anything that we can imagine or dream of. He says that this is a place of many rooms. In the original language, the word for room is similar to the word for stay or abide. And, and it's implying like a, a sense of hospitality with this room. It's, it's not like you're being put in like a, a, a dry, sterile hospital room or something. Like, like this is a, a warm place that you are welcome to to relax in, that you're, you're safe in. This is, this is a good room. This is a good place to abide in. And there's many rooms. Jesus isn't just talking to Peter, although Peter really needs to hear this. He's not just talking to the disciples. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. There, there, there's a place in heaven for you, a place for, for those who love Jesus and have been redeemed by him, There is a place for you. And he calls this my father's house, my father's house. Jesus himself has a unique dwelling place. As the son of God, he has a unique dwelling place with God the father. And this is a a divine fellowship along with the Holy Spirit. Uh, And I can't wait to to preach more about this on Trinity Sunday. But the the Trinity is this this divine relationship, this eternal giving and receiving, this eternal joy and gladness and satisfaction that's, that's taking place. Sometimes it's depicted as, as a feast, as a table. Sometimes it's depicted as, as a dance that's going on. That's the divine 
relationship, the divine fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we are adopted into this. We are brought into this. We get to partake at the the table of God himself. What a mystery. What does that even mean? What will that look like to have a place in the house of the Father? Wow. So, sure, there might be some football that goes on. But this is otherworldly, an otherworldly home that we get to enter into. These are new realities, new cosmic realities. You have a home. It's a place where the, the scars of this world will be healed. The scars of the ways in which we've hurt one another will be healed. The, the scars that are upon ourselves will be healed. We will have a home with God the Father. So what's a second thing that we can glean from this passage? Jesus says, you know the way. And I love this. Thomas is like, mm, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know the way, actually. Could you please clarify that? <laughs> he says, I don't know the way. How can we know the way, he says. And then Jesus tenderly says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How often we, we bring a problem or a concern to Jesus and responds out of his own identity, his own relationship. He doesn't give us some kind of truth to bank on or something like that. He says, I am the truth. I am the way to God. So if you want liberation from sin, if you want freedom from darkness, if you want healing from shame, if these things plague you, if you want union with God, if you want to be able to see him, Jesus extends his hand to you and says, follow me. I'm the way. I am the way to this. So I'm reminded of another story in the Bible. It's one of my favorites. Do you remember when the disciples, they're on the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus is, uh, they've they've left Jesus on the shore. He told them to to go ahead. And then, especially if you read this in Mark's account, the storm just like comes upon them, this, this storm out of the middle of nowhere. And in Mark's account, it, it's almost given these like demonic sort of adjectives to it. And the idea is that the, the disciples there in their boat, are, they're being oppressed by this storm. They're consumed with fear. They're consumed with terror. And then as, as the waves are sort of lapping into the boat, they look out and they, they see this person who's literally walking on the water, coming closer to them, and they freak out. They just lose their minds in this moment until one of them realizes that's the Lord Jesus. Yahweh incarnate is walking upon the waves of the sea, coming closer to them. And finally, Peter is just like, Jesus, invite me out onto the water. I want to do this. And Jesus says, come, come to me. So sure enough, Peter steps out onto the water and he, he walks on the waves with Jesus. But what happens? He takes his gaze off Jesus and he starts looking at these waves and they're kind of pushing up against him and the wind continues to howl. And his gaze isn't on Jesus anymore. It's, it's on his surroundings and he starts to sink. The Bible tells us that he starts to sink. Eventually, he drops into the water. And what happens? Jesus plunges his hand into the water. He grabs Peter by the wrist and pulls him back up and holds him tight. And he's safe. It's the hand of Jesus. It's the person of Jesus who's the way out of that chaotic water. 
And friends, brothers and sisters, this is true for us also. It's Jesus who lifts you up out of the chaotic storms of this world and he pulls you into his his embrace. So Jesus is the way out. But how? How is he the way? Well, he tells us. He says, I am also the truth. I am the life. One of the Bible truths is that every man, woman, and child has rebelled against God, that we are in dire trouble, you could say. In our rebellion, what this has done is this has plunged us into the stormy chaos of this world. We've been plunged into the, the, the darkness, the ignorance of a storm. We've been plunged into, into death itself as the water fills our own lungs and we're incapable of, of pulling ourselves out of the water. We are all ignorant and dead to sin. But it's, it's because of this ignorance that we are in need of the revelation of divine truth. We need his instructions for righteousness and beautiful living. We need his wisdom on on how to actually stop hurting one another and how to forgive one another. But because of our death, we need divine life, the life of Jesus, which he breathes out upon us. He gives us the new life of his Holy Spirit, enabling us and empowering us to actually live a life like his a Jesus life. As one scholar says, in addition to being the way, Jesus is also the lodging and he's also the destination. In addition to being the way, the path there, Jesus is also that abiding place. He's he's that lodging, but he's also the destination. He's the picture of that fullness of life that we ourselves are going to attain someday when he takes away all of the darkness and sin and shame from us. So I'm sure you caught this, but as, as, you were, as you were hearing this passage, there in verse 6, Jesus also says, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is a bit of a scandalous passage uh, in this day and age, isn't it? And I think that there's sort of two ditches that we can kind of fall into as we read this passage. On one side, we're, we're scandalized by this, and we say things like, well, how dare Jesus proclaim a uh, claim to be the only way to God? Why is that true? How could Jesus be the only way? And so we reject that notion of Jesus being unique. We, we think that we're being polite and kind to others when we do this. But when you deny the uniqueness of Jesus, you're essentially saying that all religions are the same. And to do so claims that Jesus is no longer who he says that he was, that he's not the son of God. Saying that all religions is the same, this is, this is democratic, I guess, and it sounds sort of lovely. But any honest study of the world religions shows that this simply isn't true. If you were to go to Jerusalem and see the Islamic uh, Dome of the Rock there, and along the side are, are inscribed a, a bunch of different sayings, one of which is, there, or one of them is, God has no son. So if you're going to say that all the religions are the same, how are you going to square those two things together when you have Jesus saying, I am the son. If you've, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the son of God. You can't square all the world's religions unless you neuter them of their core beliefs. But the other problem with with at least the way in which we treat this passage is that sometimes we can look at this passage and emphasize it as if Jesus' exclusivity is the actual core and um, that which we ought to emphasize when we're, we're sharing Jesus with others. 
Maybe you were in a tradition like that where it felt like the church was bullying you into becoming a Christian, right? Or trying to intimidate you into it. We cannot forget that the truth and life through which we find the way, Jesus himself is the great servant of all. He is the one who washes the disciples' feet and calls us to do the same. He is the great shepherd who gently heals us and restores us. He lays down his life for the sheep. So the way is clear, the way is bold, but the way is also gentle and peaceful and good. So Jesus points us, gives us hope in a home with him, in a home with God the Father, but he also gives us hope because he is the way and he's made himself known to us and he's alive and he's with us. He speaks to us. So thirdly, what does this passage have for us? Jesus says in verse 12, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater things than these will he do. What a puzzling passage. What a puzzling thing to say. Greater things than these. Is it possible that the church would do greater things than raising from the dead a man who had been in the tomb for four days in front of a huge crowd? I don't know. I've never seen that before. Um, maybe some of you have witnessed something like that. Maybe Jesus is talking about greater missionary activity, that through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the good news of, of his kingdom would go to all the corners of the globe. I don't think that's not a part of it, but I think that Jesus is actually being very specific here. Remember that the greatest work that Jesus does is yet to come as he's saying these things to the disciples. That is his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Jesus refers to this as his glorification. When he is lifted high, all peoples will be drawn to him. And after his glorification, Jesus will pour out his Holy Spirit upon his disciples, upon his church. And this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the greater work. This utterly transforms the, the, the hearts and the minds of his people. They begin to minister in this new reality. They get to get a glimpse of that future glory, of, of what God intends all of eternity to be directed towards, all of creation to be de- directed towards. And they're able to see some of that, and they now minister in light of that to the world around them. That is a greater work by far, that we can actually see eternity through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, and their confusion is taken away. They're, they're given the spiritual resources to, to turn back into the Old Testament and, and see how God has been preparing the world for the arrival of Jesus. And they're like, oh my goodness, there's Jesus here on every single page in this. And the, the, the lights of the eyes of their hearts are being illuminated there. They're given spiritual power to do the things that Jesus did, to to heal people, to speak words of, of wisdom into people's lives, to actually raise people from the dead. But also by the Holy Spirit, they're given a divine boldness to proclaim the good news to the ends of the earth. In other words, the people of God will live according to a new reality, that Jesus reality. It's a reality of clarity, of power, and of boldness. And it's one that you're invited into as well. It's one that you can actually experience here and now. You can get a foretaste of this through the reading of Scripture, through the ministry of the table, 
through the fellowship of believers, we're able to experience some of those future realities here and now. Yesterday, uh, here at the church, uh, we had a building cleanup day. A handful of folks were here. Woot woot. Uh, evidence of the work is out in that dumpster back there. Uh, if you want, after the service, you're more than welcome to look into the storage rooms of the church and admire how clean and empty they are. It's really shocking. Um, but as, as I was walking through the building yesterday, I was just kind of uh, reminded again of the tremendous amount of generosity of those dear Lutherans who stewarded this space uh, since 1950. Uh, so for 70-plus years, they were here in this space. Uh, you may not have heard this story, but they sold the building to us for a dollar. Did you know that? That's, that's remarkable. That's, and, and you know people don't just do that, right? They don't, like, give buildings away for a, a dollar. Like, that's a pretty, pretty unusual thing. Uh, if these people had been ministering in accordance to worldly wisdom... They would have stuck a for sale sign out there, probably gained as many dollars as they possibly could. I'm sure Kowalski's would have been a willing to, to pay top dollar for this space. I must admit, some days it'd be nice to have a, a bigger grocery store here. Um, but they weren't thinking with worldly wisdom, were they? They didn't want to see a, a bigger grocery store here. They wanted to see the continuation of a place that provides spiritual food to people, a place that can be a platform of hope to the next generation. These spiritual mothers and fathers of ours entrusted this congregation with a space like this. I don't know why, because we're, we're pretty goofy. Uh, we're, we're an odd people. Um, the Bible is clear that when we're given things, uh, nice things, it's not because we've done good things, it's because God wants to see what we do with those responsibilities. We have a gospel responsibility with this place to proclaim hope to the next generation. What a tremendous gift, right? So you yourselves, what hope do you need to cling to today? How can you take those fears that you carry, those anxieties that you carry, and place them before Jesus? Not that he's going to just zap them and make them go away. He might use those things to draw you closer to himself. But those things won't define you. They're not the final word. You have a home with God the Father. He will allow you to abide there. And not just allow you as if he's somehow tolerating this, but because he loves you. He created you because he wants to spend eternity with you. And so he's provided Jesus to you, the way for that to happen. The God-man who pays for sin who stands before you and says, I am the way, come to me, come to me, come to the Father through me, says Jesus Christ. I am the way. So how can that stir up greater hope in you? And how can you enter into the privilege of proclaiming that to those in your life, those who God has placed in close proximity to you, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers? Because brothers and sisters, you have a tremendous responsibility before you. This world is a fearful one. It is a terrifying world. But you know the words of Jesus, that in him there is hope and home and life. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, you are alive and you pour your Holy Spirit upon us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing so. Lord, increase our faith when we are afraid. 
Lord, help us to believe more in you. Help us to see you more clearly, Lord, with the eyes of our heart. Speak to us, Lord, and open our ears. Lord, I pray for every man, woman, and child in this room that you might increase our hope in you, that you might give us eyes to be able to peer into eternity itself and see that beautiful, heavenly place where we will abide with you forever and ever. And help us, Lord, give us boldness to bring others into this as well. Our loved ones, Lord, our neighbors, those who we care deeply about, help us, Lord, to share this hope with them. We ask all of this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.